Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Presuming people will just come in if they want to come in. Uh, thank you so much for staying. Um, this is kind of, uh, I'll tell you exactly how we're going to do this. Um, I've got about 35 questions. There's no way in the world that we'll get through all 35. And we're going to leave this building at 9.30. Okay? So we've got 55 minutes. I'm just going to go for it. Ask a question. Some of the questions will be very sh- short answers. Some of the questions I'll give a longer answer. Some of the questions I'll refer you to um, other teachings that we have, we have done. Um, the reason for doing this and the reason for doing the whole series is that... Um, you know, it, it is important that we wrestle with our faith. It's really, really important that we, we ask serious questions about why does God do certain things? Why does God behave in certain ways? What does it look like for Christians to, uh, uh, to try and follow him? Uh, when, when Christians traditionally have said the Bible says so, well, what does that mean? And uh, you see, what we're after is not near side simplicity. You know, the Bible says that, so we do this. What we're after is what, what um, has been described as far-side simplicity. What we're after is, is, is the kind of simplicity that has been wrestled with and thought through, where you've asked serious questions about your faith. God is big enough to deal with some of the big questions of life and faith. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't want, for one, just to say, well, the Bible says so, so I'm doing this. I want to ask serious questions about certain things. Now, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I don't teach in an academic institution. Um, I am not an expert or an intellectual. I'm a pastor um, with an apostolic call. So I'm going to give you what I think. Some of, some of the stuff will be wrong, and I'll discover that later. And uh, some of the stuff will be just my opinion and my thought, but I'm, I'm going to have a go. Okay, so question number one. And I was given this about 10 minutes ago. Question number one is... What does the Bible say about manliness? That's a great question, isn't it? What does the Bible say about manliness? Uh, and uh, my answer is uh, not an awful lot, apart from the fact that um, the concept that we have of manliness in our world today is, is way, way removed from, the, from what I understand the Bible to be portraying. It's not about being a hero. It's not about um, being metro or, you know, or, or whatever it is. It's not about dressing in a certain way or looking in a certain way. Manliness is Jesus. You know, Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect humanity. Jesus is perfect leadership. And so when you look at Jesus, you see what it looks like to be a man. It's one of the reasons that Jesus takes the title Son of Man upon himself. And when you look at Jesus, he weeps, he is empathetic, and he knocks over tables in the synagogue. You know, he, he embraces the whole of human emotion, and he leverages his human emotion and his power for the good of people. He smashes strongholds. But I think the secret to his life and his manliness, three things. He only does what the Father tells him to do. And he walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he lives out of the Father's house. So if you want to be a man, 
Listen hard to what God is saying. Be absolutely obedient to what the Holy Spirit is doing and have the security of living out of the Father's house and understanding his knowledge and who he is and what he does. What does it mean to be manly? It means Jesus. Second question. Um, Can I date a non-Christian? I want this to work. Is it okay to pray for him to convert? I've had three questions like uh, this. Should I flirt to convert? Um, Seriously, some of of you love this. What's the right attitude to Christian speed dating? (laughs) Now, these questions... Thanks, Alex. Uh, Some of these were anonymous, and some of them were written by Alex. Um, These are questions that are close to my heart because I have four um, uh, daughters that I'm trying to help grow up godly. Um, You know, honestly, Rob was right. There's a whole bunch of... There's sometimes a whole bunch of nothing in the Bible that gives you direction around some of these things. Sometimes there's nuance, sometimes there's clear instruction. Let me give you this. Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart above all else. If you want to follow Jesus, you put him on the throne of your heart, and you've got to do that constantly. And you need people close to you who are going to encourage you to do that. So my play for what it's worth is your best friends need to be fellow believers. And all the rest of your friends need to be people who aren't yet believers. In other other words, you, you need people who are going to walk with you fast and hard after God if you're going to walk fast and hard after God. That's what you need. And then if you're going to look like Jesus, you're going to need a whole bunch of people who don't yet follow hard after God. How can you do that if you're deliberately and intentionally going to date someone who doesn't follow hard and hard after Jesus? Do you want to marry a non-believer? I mean, these are hard questions, aren't they? Because I've got a whole bunch of friends who are married to people who don't yet believe, who I love deeply. The Bible calls it being unequally yoked to Corinthians 6, 14. And why is that such a big issue? It's such a big issue because when you get married, the two become one. Indivisible. You become one unit. How did the two become one when the most important part of your life you cannot share with somebody else? How does that work? Can it work? Absolutely it can work. I see it working. Can it work perfectly? No. Because the thing that is most important to you in your life, if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't share with the person who's most important to you outside of Christ. There is a a fundamental issue. So how do you act? Have lots of friends? Run as hard as you can for Jesus? Pursue him with everything you've got? Look to your left and to your right and find people who are running as hard and fast for Jesus as you are? Ask yourself, do I fancy them? If you do, boom. As long as they fancy you as well, otherwise it's called stalking. Okay? Uh, Christian speed dating, um, get over yourself, really. Um, uh, See, see, here's the problem. The problem with Christian speed dating is this. The most important thing is not what you see 
on the exterior, it's what's in your heart. How can you work out what's in someone's heart in 60 seconds when you're doing speed dating? I mean, you have to be physically attracted to one another. But actually, the fundamental thing is you want character and you want a heart. Check out, I've done some teaching on Song of Solomon. Um, check out the teaching I've done on Song of Solomon, chapter one. You know, as a woman, you want a character of iron. You don't want a guy who's going to be flaky. Do you? No. As a guy, you want a woman who is just as concerned, if not more so, with what's going on in her heart than she is in what's going on on her face. Honestly. Because there's going to come a time when that's all going south. <laughs> this is growing. <laughs> moving, <laughs> moving swiftly odd. Uh, don't, don't go speed dating. Uh, let let this is going to be fun. I was really worried about this. This is going to be great. Um, let's, 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 let's make our questions easier. What are angels? <laughs> what are angels? How do we relate to them? That's interesting, isn't it? Well, here goes my thoughts on, on that. Angel, angel comes from the Greek word agalos, which means messenger, and it's similar, it comes from the Hebrew word malak, which has the same meaning. My my one thought around this is that angels are mentioned 108 times in the Old Testament and 165 times in the New Testament. So if you have an issue in believing in angels, you're non-biblical. You know, if, if, if you've got a challenge in believing that God has his angels and they're all around and they're doing stuff, then it's tantamount to believing that, that, that it's only God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. Because there are as many references to God interacting with people through angels as there are almost anything else in the Bible. So what are angels? They are created beings. We know that from Colossians 1. And what do they do? The book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 1.14, that they are ministering spirits. So as spirits, they don't have physical bodies, but they often take on the form of humans. And we, we, we know that because um, in uh, Hebrews 13, verse 2, we're told that we can entertain angels unawares. Um, in other words, they, they sometimes look an awful lot like you and me. You might be sitting next to an angel right now. Um, you might be ministering. No, you're not. <laughs> Uh, um, and angels never wear red trousers, Alex. So, um, but Genesis, Genesis chapter eight, Alex, you're in the wrong line. You're just in my sight line, just there. Uh, Genesis 18, Abraham welcomes three angelic guests who appear to be ordinary travelers, uh, but they're angels. So, what are angels doing? Job description. Their job description is to worship God. Isaiah chapter nine: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Almighty. Their job description is to give messages to communicate God's will to humanity. Again and again and again, when God wants something said, he shows up, he, he sends an angel to say it. Their job description is to guide and provide and protect and deliver. Psalm 91, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in your ways. Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you have a guardian angel? Okay, here we go. I think so. I and we've all got guardian angels. Matthew chapter 18 
uh, implies that all children have guardian angels who watch out for them and watch over them. And I can't see any reason why God doesn't give to those who fear him angels to protect and to watch over and to guide. Um, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23, suggests that the body of Christ, all of us, have millions of angels camping around us. So I have no problems in thinking that God is always acting on our behalf and he uses his guise to do it. And I have had experiences when I wouldn't be able to promise or say, but I reckon that was an angel, that I was being protected and provided for by an angel, that God did something using others to do it. Um, so how do I posture myself towards angels? There's a lot of angelology out there. Um, I don't be weirdy weirdy about it. Um, you know, going up to people and asking, "Are you an, a- are you an angel?" <laughs> Although that would be quite funny, and we could do some, we could we could do cameras, couldn't we? Where people go, "Excuse me," you know, that wouldn't be that funny. But don't don't be weirdy weirdy about the whole thing. Um, don't instruct angels, because these are heavenly beings. Um, we're not talking cherubs, fat, chubby cherubs with, with arrows. We're talking warrior angels who sort things out, who can protect you, who fight on your behalf. Don't worship angels, because they're not God. They're created beings. Don't look for angels to take the place of God. He rescues, he saves, he provides, he blesses. So my play on it is thank God for the angels. Don't get obsessed with them. Stop looking for them. They're there. Thank God for what he's doing um, and ask him to continue to do it. But know that those who are for you are more than those who are against you. And that sometimes he offers you an opportunity to have your eyes open to the reality of this world, which is that we live in a spiritual world. And that the enemy has his troops, but so does Father God. Angels. Um, Wow. Uh, Can I lose my salvation? Oh, it's two people asked this question. Can I lose my salvation? Um, my answer is this. If, if I can lose my salvation, I already have. And so have you. If, if, if the security of my salvation is dependent on my goodness and my holiness and my rightness with God, then I lost it ages ago. But it isn't. My security is in him, on what the Son of God has done on my behalf. Better question. Can God lie? Can Jesus sin? Because God says the Father will lose none of those that have been given to Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 12. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, those he foreknew, this is in Romans 8, those he foreknew he predestined, and those he predestined he chose, and those he chose he justified, and those he justified he also glorified. In other words, there is this progression from, from, from the moment that you actively are drawn into the family of God's people, you can't get lost. He's, he's in a process of glorifying you. Can you slip out of the hand of God? No. 
never, because his hands are too big. What about those who deny Jesus? If by denying Jesus you mean in a moment of weakness or sin you deny Jesus like Peter, no, 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 that, that, that's, that, that, that you don't lose your salvation. You weep and you mourn, you jump into the water and you run back to Christ in repentance and recommitment and you get it sorted. But what about those who constantly deny Jesus? Did they ever belong? I don't know. The parable of the sower seems to help us. Maybe the seed was taken away. Maybe the rock was too near the surface. Maybe the weeds. I don't know. Read that and try and work it out for yourself. But here's my thing. If you are asking this question, can I lose my salvation, the answer is no. Because the very act of you asking this question tells me that you're concerned about this question and that you have faith in Jesus. And that your, your current doubt is just the normative, things, the normative part of life where you weigh things up and you question things and you work things through. Your faith and your salvation is not dependent upon you. It never was and it never will be. It's dependent upon your response to a God of grace and a God of mercy. I think that's all I've got to say about that. Can I lose my salvation? What is... Can, can they lose their salvation? Yeah. So the answer would still be the same. Can, if, they had, if they had faith, they can't lose it because that faith was a gift from God. Um, I guess the, the passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 4, the sower, you might want to bring into question whether that person ever really had faith or didn't have faith, whether the seed actually fell into the soil or whether it was snatched away or not. Um, and if you're asking it for somebody else, your response is to pray for them, uh, live large the kingdom of God in front of them, and witness to them. Uh, what is the role of the church in the running of government, and how did you vote? <laughs> Brilliant. I, I'll just, I'll, let me tell you a story. I was in Bristol. Uh, two weeks ago, preaching, and God showed up. Loads of people were being prayed for in different ways. This guy comes down the front to me. He looked about 12. He said to me, something's opened up for me that's just incredible. I've been offered an opportunity to stand for Parliament, and the, the seat will be a safe seat, so it looks likely that I'm going to be an MP um, by this time next year. He told me he was 30. He looked 12. And he said, would you pray for me? I said, of course I will pray for you, depending upon what party you're standing for. <laughs> and he said, you kip. And I said, I can't pray for you then. <laughs> and he went, oh. I said, I'm only joking. <laughs> and I prayed for him. Now, I may have given away some of my political leadings or non-political leadings at that point. But, but how do we posture ourselves? See, see and there is in my family a generation back a philosophy amongst Christians that you didn't vote, you didn't get involved in politics, you didn't have an opinion because that was all worldly stuff. How, how should we as Christians respond? Um, I think Romans chapter 13 um, encourages us to pray for, encourage, submit to and support those who are put in leadership over us. Whether or not 
we think in any given moment they deserve our support and encouragement. Which is a really hard teaching, isn't it? Because sometimes we know stuff and we think stuff. Should we submit to them in all things? No. Should we submit when they ask us to do wrong? My rule of thumb is this. When what they ask you to do or you're told to do compromises your relationship with God or contradicts God's law, then you always bow to a higher power. Check out Daniel chapter 1 when he's asked to eat food that he shouldn't eat. But our role is not just to join in the media circus to slag off anyone in authority or opt out of the political process. The model we have once again is Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's. And and the example of Jesus was that he didn't act like a Pharisee or an Essene, in other words, hiding away from to keep himself pure from society. Equally, he didn't act like a, a Sadducee or Herodian, just blending in with the whole of society. He acted like a, a restorer. I have come to restore things. I have come to change paradigms. I've come to break down strongholds. I've come to speak truth into the whole of life. And so if we're going to be the body of Christ, we have to speak truth. We have to act with righteousness and justice. We have to stand for the rights of those who have their rights taken away from them. We have to speak for the oppressed and we have to look like Jesus. We're told in Matthew chapter 5 to be salt and light, to flavor and to illuminate this world How did I vote? Mind your own business. (laughs) But I did vote. And interestingly, if you really want to know, my vote has not always remained constant over the years. I feel increasingly non-party political in the way I vote. I'm much more interested in the right people and the right policies than I am in what I see as a bit of a game in the British political system which is the party in power has to toe a particular line and the party not in power has to oppose it, even if it's right. That seems to me to be a piece of nonsense because we, we bow to a higher power. So that's just my opinion. I, I don't know whether you'd agree or don't agree with that. I was going to say I don't care, but I probably do. Can you prove the existence of God to me? <laughs> no. Can he prove himself to you? Yes, if you ask him. Um, Proverbs 8, 17, those who seek me will find me. Matthew 7, 8, he who seeks, find. If, If the question you're asking is this, is it rational to suggest that God exists? Yes, absolutely it's rational. Uh, My mind tells me that God exists. Let's do this really quickly because we haven't got a lot of time. Um, My mind tells me that what caused there to be something rather than nothing? Everything that exists is dependent or contingent. So this piece of paper on which this question is, is, is written is dependent or contingent on a whole number of processes and a whole number of things to exist. There is nothing in this world that is not dependent or contingent on something else. If something or somebody created all those things, then that somebody or something must be uncaused, non-contingent, all-powerful. It or he cannot be contingent 
or not powerful. And, and when you begin to argue in that kind of way, you come very, very close to a traditional and orthodox description of God. Eternal, other, uncaused, non-contingent, all-powerful. Honestly, I don't really care whether you think everything was created in seven days or 700 days. Those things are not important to me because I don't think, personally, I mean, I have an opinion about Genesis chapter one, but I don't think Genesis chapter one is primarily trying to say it happened in this time scale. It's trying to say God did it, and it's incredible. So my mind tells me that God exists. My eyes tell me that God exists. What caused that something to be beautiful and to work in such an incredible way? What caused hummingbirds? What caused Hebridean sunsets? What caused the human eye to work in exactly the way? There has to be a designer who created this stuff. What caused that something uh, to, 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 to work so perfectly? God did. My heart tells me that God exists. What causes my conscience? What causes the universal uh, uh, understanding of moral code and law and order? What causes in every generation an understanding that killing and rape is wrong? What, What caused that kind of feeling? What causes people to want to worship even today in a post Christian, post Christendom, post God world? We still want to worship things. We we just do it with celebrities and football teams. But there's something inside us that wants to worship. What causes that? Because well, I'll tell you what causes it. What causes it is that you and I were created in the image of God for relationship with him. We have this God-responder mechanism in our hearts and lives. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that. Can I prove the existence of God to you? No. Can I tell you that it's consistent with my understanding and my heart and my experience? Absolutely. Can God prove himself to you? Yes, and he will if you ask him. Is it always God's plan to heal? Yes. His name is Jehovah Rapha, rather. It means mender forever. So why are people not always healed? And what do you think, Carl, about cancer-free zones? and declaring that everyone's gonna get healed and you, if you haven't been healed, there's obviously something wrong with your faith or the prayers that have been prayed over you. I think we live in a kingdom now and not yet situation. I think that's what Jesus teaches. There is coming a day when kingdom will be all there is, unopposed, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, when everything that he wants happens. But for now, the kingdom of God is radically opposed by the enemy of God's people. That's why we have pain. That's why we have disorder. That's why we have war. That's why we have conflict. Why doesn't God just intervene and heal all people? Well, because God is desperately wanting intimate relationship with us, which precludes him from treating us like robots because he wants us to have free will to engage with him or not engage with him as we see fit. What's God in the business of doing? 
Well, he's in the business of doing, of restoring all things that got broken in the garden. What got broken in the garden? Well, humanity's relationship with God got broken in the garden, but humanity's relationship with one another got broken in the garden, and humanity's relationship with themselves got broken in the garden. That's why they were not comfortable in their own skin. And humanity's relationship with the whole of cosmos got broken in the garden. So God is in the business of restoring all of those things. Are they completely restored right now? No. They're in the process of being restored. Why, why aren't all people healed instantly in the way we want? Well, because he is Lord and you are not. He's Lord over the timing and he's Lord over your healing. And sometimes your healing is coming, but it's not yet. And sometimes your healing is your death. because that's perfect healing. You're with Jesus complete forever. So, how do I posture myself? Recognize when I'm praying for healing and not experiencing and that it's not God's fault. His desire is still for your healing. Secondly, do what Jesus told his disciples to do, which was fast and pray. Take it seriously. I see too often people praying for someone, they don't get healed and then giving up and walking away and going, well, that's obviously not God's will. No, no, Jesus said fast and pray that you might receive breakthrough. So posture yourself to saying, I'm gonna continue to pray. As long as you want me to pray for you, I'm gonna continue to pray until you receive your healing. Thirdly, take risks. You know that the kingdom is not yet. You know there is coming a day when kingdom will be complete, but posture yourself towards the fact that the kingdom is now. Believe that God wants to heal everybody and trust him for it and pray for it and ask him to come and do it and be faithful. Wow. Um, Two final questions. What does a large 21st century church look like that is fervently waiting for the return of Jesus? This, maybe. I, I think it looks like a people who um, have intentionally and passionately embraced the up, in, and out of discipleship. In other words, I think it looks like a people who are passionately pursuing Jesus with everything that they've got. I want to know you, Father, and I want to look more like you. I want to hear your voice and I want to speak on your behalf. I think it looks like people who are passionately and intimately and intentionally pursuing community. I want to do this in relationship with other people and I'm willing to open my life, open my wallet, open my heart in every way that will build community and be inclusive. I think it looks like a people who are passionately committed to the world, who say, this is for that, this is for everyone who doesn't yet belong, to, to Jesus and I am going to give myself on behalf of the least, the last and the lost because I love God. We will give ourselves in complete abandonment. I think, it, it, I mean I would say this but I think it looks like the next 20 years a hundred hubs like this and a million people saved. I think it looks like the transformation of the nation. I think it looks like every sphere of culture being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ but I think it starts with that word devotion. I think it starts with 
if I haven't got you, I haven't got anything. I think it starts on our knees. I think it starts in worship. I think it starts in surrender and submission. Because I think, I mean, one of the, I'm, I'm teaching this series in a couple of weeks' time that we've called Giveology. No, I've called Giveology. Everyone else is deeply suspicious of the title. But, but I, think, I think it stems from the fact that, um, that I often talk about all in. Because Jesus is coming back. And you see, we live in a generation where people don't believe that. My, my father's generation, they were scared stiff of the fact that Jesus was coming back like a thief in the night and, you know, I wish we'd all been ready kind of stuff. But our generation doesn't really believe that. In fact, I'm not even sure we want him to come back because we're enjoying ourselves too much down here and we completely misunderstand how wonderful he is. And so, so I, I think I want to lead a generation that want to see Jesus. And while we're waiting, we want to look like Jesus. So the giveology thing comes from the fact that I talk all the time about the fact that we're all in, but I suspect that what I do is I'm, I'm all in and I hold this back. I'm all in, but I hold on to my security and I hold on to my job and I hold on to my reputation and I hold on to my life and I hold on to my family and, and what I evidence in that is that a whole bunch of other things have become the most important thing for me and the authority for me. And Jesus is looking for a people who will be abandoned who will say, do you know what, whatever it takes, because I'm totally all in, I'm all in. And you know what, here's the thing, the, the stuff that you think you have to give up to be all in, you do have to give up, and then he gives you back better. It's not transactional. It doesn't mean that, you know, all in doesn't mean that you have to neglect everything that God has given you in your life. It doesn't mean that you're going to be the paupers of this world. We'll teach on some of that stuff. It just means you have to be willing to say, it all belongs to you and I'm all for your glory. Take it and use it. And if it means that, then I'm up for it. Totally up for it. Final thought. Six minutes. Here it is. think <laughs> what's the best piece of advice you can give me is the question and I, I thought about this here, here it is okay this might not be that helpful but Ephesians chapter 5 you'll find this I actually really like this so check this out Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I think the best piece of advice I can give is to give you a brand new filter for the way in which you live your life. Ask the right question. What is the wise thing to do according to God? See, most of you are younger and, and most of you will be tempted just to blitz through life, ruling nothing in and nothing out and hoping that one day it will all sort itself out and not asking this question, what is the wise thing to do because the days are evil? 
What is the wise thing to do because there are opportunities out there? What is the wise thing to do with my money and my time and my education and my qualifications and the experiences I've got? What's the wise thing to do? And you'll come to two conclusions. Conclusion number one, you already know what the wise thing to do is. You know because of the experiences that you've had, the teaching that you've been given, and the Holy Spirit in you, you know what the wise thing to do is. And the second conclusion you'll come to is almost contradictory. You've got no idea what the wise thing to do is, so you have to ask God. James chapter 1 says this, You who would be wise, you would ask God who is full of wisdom, and he would love to give to you wisdom. So the best piece of advice I can give you is this. Ask yourself intentional questions about the wise thing to do in every given situation and ask God who gives wisdom to you and he will guide. Let me pray for us. Father, once again we pray wheat and chaff prayers. We pray that which was truth and of your word and helpful for us would it, would it sink into our hearts and would it grow and would it produce a harvest? Because we want to be doers of your word, not just listeners to your word, because we want to be your people. Would you help us to be those kind of passionate people who are seeking after your face, who are trusting you for healing and for transformation, who are seeing people saved, who are building community that can really be called community and are changing the world. That's what we want to be. And would you blow away on the wind anything that was unhelpful and nonsense and came out of the flesh of the preacher man that would do damage to us? And Holy Spirit, would you give us a great night's sleep? Amen. Amen. Thanks so much.